Now turn with me this morning in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to read together the last three verses. 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're reading the last three verses. First Peter chapter 5, reading from verse 13. Let us hear the word of the Lord. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon elected together with you saluteth you, and so doth Marketh my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And amen. We know that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this short reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from 1 Peter chapter 5. And the verse 13. And my theme today is a close inspection of the church at Babylon. If you look at verse 13, it says the church that is at Babylon elected together with you, saluted you. Now 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 12 to 14 forms the conclusion to Peter's first letter to the churches in five provinces in Asia Minor. And this portion of Holy Scripture is what I'm calling an inspired postscript. And this postscript, of course, is full of interesting material and spiritual details that we have not been told about up to this point in the whole of the letter. And sadly, I've learned that this is a postscript that some commentators have just merely glossed over and not gone into any detail at all. And I have to confess that when I first read the postscript, I thought I'll just preach one sermon on it. And then some weeks ago, as I waited before the Lord in prayer and looked at it afresh, I noticed that there was at least five sermons here. And two or three weeks ago, I preached on the first sermon, Sylvanus, a faithful brother. See, up to this point, Peter had dictated the letter to a man that was with him called Sylvanus. And he describes him here as a faithful brother. And then as we come to verse 12, it's as if Peter has taken the pen out of Sylvanus's hand and wrote this inspired postscript by his own hand. And as he does so, he introduces us to a man with him, a man called Sylvanus. Now, Sylvanus, as we have already pointed out, is the Latin name for the Greek Silas. And this a man was with him all the time, and yet we have to wait to the end of the letter to discover that. He was Peter's manuscript writer. He was the kind of a secretary, and we're also told that he was a faithful brother. He was the one that was tasked not only to write the letter, but he was tasked to hand deliver the letter to the churches in the five 
provinces. And we'd encourage you to go back on the internet and you can visit our church website and you can hear that sermon for yourself. And then last week I preached a sermon on the true grace of God. I asked this simple basic question, why did Peter write this letter? And we're told at the very end of it why it was written. Think of the words. As I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. And I preached the sermon title, Understanding the True Grace of God. Here is uh, Peter's purpose in writing. He's writing to persecuted believers. He's wanting to help them and encourage them. Remember, it's hard for them to be a Christian. Many of them are in prison. Some have been murdered. And it's a very difficult time for the people of God. And how best could he encourage them? By, by getting them to focus and understand the true grace of God. Peter is telling his readers and us that this brief letter, five chapters in total, it has one overall aim, one overall purpose, and it's to show the believers in his day, suffering hardship, facing persecution, having a tough time for being a Christian, what the true grace of God is, and exhort them to continue to stand in it. Now, that was the second sermon. Again, you can listen on the internet. Now, if you look closely at verse 13, there's a third message, and it's this. The church that is at Babylon elected together with you, saluteth you. And now we're learning something else. We're learning where Paul is actually at. He's at a place called Babylon. And we're introduced to that for the very first time in the letter. And I want you to notice on the surface that there's a church there. And this church is elected together with the churches to whom Peter is writing. And this church at Babylon, it sends its greetings to these churches in Asia Minor. And not only that, but it's more than just a form of greeting to say hello. But it's indicating a kind of solidarity with them. So I, I want this morning to have a close inspection of the church at Babylon. Now you have, have three simple things. I want you to think first of all of the meaning of the church at Babylon. The Bible says the church that is at Babylon. And we'll stop there. Now this meaning of course has divided many good commentators. Because the initial thought has to be what does Babylon mean? Where is Babylon at? What's its possible location? And you see, ancient tradition takes it to mean that Babylon is a code name for Rome. That Babylon means Rome. And some modern commentators, as well as some ancient ones, will tell you that Babylon means Rome. So the word is used not literally, but metaphorically, it's used as a method of security, protecting the Christians. What does that mean? It means that Peter was at Rome. It means that Peter's writing from Rome. 
And Roman Catholic theologians to this day state that this is the only possible meaning of the text. And of course, to them, it bolsters their claim that Peter was not only at Rome, but, but therefore Peter was also the first pope. Now, I, I want to say this morning, there's not the slightest bit of evidence that Peter was ever at Rome. And I want to say there's not the slightest bit of evidence either, and I'm not spending time on the subject, but we can assert quite categorically that Peter never was the first pope. It's a non-proven theory. It is not factual. It is not even scriptural. See, I don't believe this morning that Babylon is a code name for Rome. Peter didn't say the church that is at Rome elected together with you. So that if, you, if he was at Rome and meant Rome, it would have said Rome. But it doesn't. It says Babylon. Now, I don't believe that Babylon, as I've said, is a code name for Rome. Nor do I believe it means Babylon in Egypt, nor Jerusalem in Israel. You see, that's all conjecture. That's all speculation. That's the opinions and theories of inventive minds. As I've said, the best of commentators, good commentators, Reformed and Protestant, for example, have, have taken that Babylon means Rome. And I have to say this morning, while I'm not an authority, I have to disagree. I do disagree, do agree, of course, with the like of John Calvin, because he was happy to take Babylon as literal Babylon. If you look up an ancient map, you'll find Babylon positioned there on the mouth of the river Euphrates. And that's in modern-day Iraq. And if you look up an ancient Bible map, you'll get the same information. The name, I believe, was not used symbolically as a code name for Rome. I believe the name is used literally and correctly for ancient literal Babylon. It's a real place in history. It's a real place in time. See, the Bible must be taken literally where possible. Let the Bible speak. The plain sense of the Bible must stand. And that's a good hermeneutical principle when you're reading the scriptures. I believe that Roman Catholic theologians are wrong to latch on to one text and use it to bolster the theory that Peter was at Rome and therefore Peter was the first pope. There's no evidence, as I've said, that Peter was ever at Rome. But there's plenty of evidence that Paul was there. And of course, if Babylon, for example, meant Rome... The Roman Catholic theologians allege that. Then when they come to Revelation 17, how do they interpret mystery Babylon? Because that also means Rome. And John described it as the mother of harlots. Now I believe that the meaning of the church here is literal Babylon. Now, now think with me just a couple of thoughts and I'll tease them out. Babylon was once a centre of the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he sacked Jerusalem, uh, took Judea, 
sometime about uh, 586 BC. That was 586 years before Christ. And there was a big Jewish community there. And they were taken captive there. And they lived there. And they, 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 they raised their families there. And you have to think of Psalm 137 by the rivers of Babylon. It's not a popular song, young people, sung by a group called Boney M. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. So, so there was a big Jewish community there. Also, Babylon is synonymous with Antichrist and the forces of darkness. Instruments of the devil used by God to destroy the children of Israel and to, to bind them in that day. Babylon, I believe, was always under the curse and the control of God. And God had set a time for its destruction demise. But in the first century, in the days that Paul lived, in the days that Peter lived, Babylon still existed. And Babylon existed, according to historians, and there's historical evidence to this effect, right up until the second century. So there's a real place in ancient maps called Babylon, on the mouth of the river Euphrates, in modern-day Iraq, where there was a strong Jewish community that had settled there from the 5th century. Not all the Jews returned under Ezra and Nehemiah to the land of Israel. And we're told in Peter's day that there's a church there. Now, now think of this. A church in the most unlikely of places in the whole of the world. And if there was a church there, then I put it to you this morning that Peter was there. The church that is in Babylon elected together with you. What is it doing? Saluteth you. It's sending you greetings. So Peter had to be among them. Let, let me just toss and tease something out. If you turn over there to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Whenever Peter got out of prison and went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, why do you believe to be John Mark? They knocked on the door and remember Rhoda came to the door and went back in and thought she'd seen a ghost and Peter eventually got in. Look with me at verse 17. Acts chapter 12, verse 17. But he beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. Now notice this. And he departed and went into another place. Now let's ask, where did Peter go to? And while I can't say definitively this morning, he left Jerusalem because that's where he was imprisoned. And then where does he go to? Did he go to Babylon? At least it's a possibility. And we're told that he is writing from this place. We're told there's with him a number of men. He mentioned Silvanus, his secretary or manuscript writer. He mentions another man, and so doth Marketh my son. See that reference to Marcus? Now we're going to preach next week, and failure's never final. But Marcus was John Mark. 
And that was the very house that Peter went to when he got out of prison. And his mother was called Mary. So there's a connection. And John Mark is with him. Did John Mark leave and go with Peter for a time? Think of it. If out of all the places, there's a church in Babylon. And there's men with Peter there. And John Mark is one of them. And we're learning here about the wonder and the mystery and the greatness of the true grace of God. Isn't it true this morning that there's victory in Jesus? Now, the meaning of the church at Babylon, it's literal Babylon. I can't make that any stronger to you. (coughs) Secondly, let's think about the mentioning of the church at Babylon. If you accept this morning, like I do, that it's a literal place with real people in real time, what does Peter say about this church? The church that is at Babylon, what does he say about them? Elected together with you. There's the life and the witness of the church. You see, the word elected means chosen. Chosen by who? Chosen by God. You see, God's purpose in election guarantees the success of the gospel. And I think, I believe that that is a truth that many have lost sight of in our day and our generation. Remember what we read in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. The Apostle Paul says, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. There's a church at Babylon. And the establishment of the church came about by God's eternal purpose. And God's purpose and election guarantees the success of the gospel. And therefore the establishment, the commencement, the consolidation, the continuation of the church cannot be thwarted, cannot be frustrated because God is at the back of it. The gospel has reached ancient Babylon. There's a church there made up of sinners who have been called out from the world, who have been called together, who who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and Lord and Savior. and, And they've discovered the Lord has chosen them and the Lord has called them and the Lord has cleansed them in his blood and the Lord cares for them. Even for that people that are together in Babylon. See, isn't it not the kind of place we would choose, sure not? God is sovereign. See, God has a Bible-believing church there. And Peter's there for a time. And Peter's writing about the fact that they're elected together with you. That, that's the churches in Asia Minor. And God's purpose has... And God's purpose must and will stand. As I've said, it can't be thwarted. It can't be frustrated. The word elected together with you ties into God's sovereign purpose and election. 
ties into the fact that God is in absolute sovereign control. Ties in that God has his people everywhere. See, God's purpose always stands. God has a purpose to save. God has a purpose to strengthen and sustain and secure his people. Those whom God saves, he keeps. See, this church exists because of God's sovereign power and God's sovereign purpose. Because of God's good pleasure. Because of the doctrine of God's election. As I've said, it guarantees the success of the gospel. No man deserves to be saved. All men deserve to be damned because we're sinners by nature and practice. But those who are saved are saved by the free grace of God. If you turn over there to Romans chapter 9, read with me verses um, 11 to 13. Speaking about Jacob and Esau, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. You see, I want to say this morning, that God's purpose for the land of Israel will, will stand. The children of Israel will, will not be destroyed. They'll never be wiped out. And they'll never be uh, driven into the Mediterranean Sea. Not, not all the powers of hell on earth. Not, not every devil and imp in hell uh, can, can bring about the destruction of the children of Israel. Because they're tied into God's sovereign eternal purposes for them. God has a purpose for his ancient people. There's a remnant according to the election of grace. Romans chapter 11 verse 5. God's purpose for Israel of God today still stands. Because every Christian that makes up the Israel of God today is saved on the basis of his irreversible and irresistible purpose of the eternal God in heaven. Again, we, we think of what Peter says there in Romans chapter 8. He says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? There's a church at Babylon. Peter was there. It met for worship. The gospel was preached there. There's a people who meet there called out by the grace of God. They have had the privilege of hearing the gospel. And God has set his electing love and grace upon them. And God's counsel shall stand. In fact, he says in uh, Isaiah 46 and verses 9 and 10, uh, My counsel shall stand, uh, and the pleasure of the Lord shall, shall be accomplished in his hand. Remember what the Lord Jesus said to Peter, the very man that was writing this. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's a church at Babylon. In a very hard and difficult place. Can I just say this morning for our encouragement. There's no hard and difficult places with God. If God can 
plant a church in Babylon, God can plant a church everywhere. That there's no rare places. There's no hard places. There's no difficult places. Is anything too hard for the Lord that the Bible asks? And the answer is no. Our responsibility as Christians, of course, is to pray that God will work and save precious souls through the gospel. Our responsibility is to preach the gospel, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The gospel's the power of God unto salvation. Didn't the Lord Jesus say in John 10 and 16, other sheep I have which are not of this fold? That is, they're not of Jewish origin or extraction. Them also I must bring. There's a multitude of Gentiles that need to be reached with the gospel. You think with me of Corinth, and this point was made on Friday night as we celebrated the 43 years of the Reverend Ken Elliot down in Portadown. Mention was made of Corinth, a hard and difficult place. When there was uproar in the city, when Paul and the people were under threat of death, the Lord met with them. And what did he tell them? Fear not, Paul, for I have much people in this city. And when he said that, they weren't saved. They hadn't been won by the gospel. They'd not even heard the gospel. And yet there was a multitude saved through the gospel. We live in days when there's much to discourage God's people. When many doubt because so many churches like our own are sitting with a number of empty seats. We have, we have unsaved loved ones within our family circle who, who are without Christ, who are not interested in the gospel. We, 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 we think of the people in our community who have little time for God or the gospel. And we think, it's too hard. It's difficult. It, it ain't going to happen. People's not going to come in and hear the word of God and the gospel. You see, when we say that, we're denying God as a plan and God as a purpose. And God's purpose and election will always stand. And God's purpose and election guarantees the success of the gospel. Remember this morning there's a God in heaven. There's a God who has a sovereign saving purpose. There's a God who at least has a purpose and a plan. And our job and responsibility is to pray to that God. To call upon his name. To ask him to work. To say it's time for thee to work. Our job is to go out and preach the gospel. Our job is to seek by the power and the grace of God. To live a life that's befitting the gospel. Not only is there the meaning of the church at Babylon. And the mentioning of the church at Babylon. But I want you to think thirdly and finally the, the mentoring of the church at Babylon. I've asked myself this question, if there was a real literal church at Babylon, how did it start? If you turn back to Acts chapter 2, you might get a little glimpse into the answer. Acts chapter 2, it's always wise and right to compare scripture with scripture. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, we're thinking about the day of Pentecost. We're thinking about the thousands that have gathered into Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And if you look with me at verse 9, it says, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers 
in Mesopotamia. Now here's individuals who are at Jerusalem from all these places. And Mesopotamia is the southern part of the Parthian Empire near the mouth of the river Euphrates. In other words, it's the area around Babylon. Remember what I said in the introduction, there's Jews in Babylon from the 5th century. And it's my contention that these Jews must, or at least some of them, have been up in Jerusalem on the day of the Pentecost. And they heard Peter preach, and they got saved, and they formed a relationship with, with, with Peter. And when Peter gets out of prison, he, he, he's under threat of death, remember? And he heads out of the land of Israel. And he ends up in a preaching ministry to these Jews because he's the apostle uh, to the, the Jewish people. Uh, and he's down in Babylon ministering to this uh, uh, church. And then they hear about what's happening in Asia Minor and the tremendous persecution. And Peter wants to encourage them to get them to understand the true grace of God. I mean, these people got saved in the day of Pentecost and went back home. They, they, they formed themselves together in a congregation. They, they lived to serve God. They, 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 they not only had spiritual life, but they had spiritual love for the Lord and the things of God. And they were loyal to God and the gospel. And they, they blaze a trail for the Lord and for the gospel. Their lives have been changed and transformed by the gospel. They've had a face-to-face encounter with the Lord Jesus. Now let me ask you this morning, are you saved? Have you had a face-to-face encounter with the Lord Jesus? Have you had a life-changing experience as you knelt as a sinner and cried out, Lord, save me, I need to be saved? Remember the Bible says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. How do you become a Christian? You come as a sinner and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. That's what you have to do. God be merciful to me, the sinner. And then look to Christ. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And trust Christ as Lord and Savior. Believe, as the Philippian jailer was told, on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Then it's not enough to intellectually believe. Remember, as we said, using the illustration of the orange last week to the children, it's an act of simple faith. You've got to come to the point where you trust Christ. And that's what happened to these dwellers in Mesopotamia. We don't know their names. We don't know their ages. We, we, we don't know whether they were male or female. We don't know if there was children and young people among them. But we know they were there. Because here it is in Acts 2 and 9. And, and that's from around the, 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 the area known as ancient Babylon. And it was my contention they got saved. And they went back home to serve the Lord. And live for his honour and live for his glory. If you're saved this morning, are, are you desiring to live for the Lord's honour and the Lord's glory? Do you put the Lord first in your life? Do, do you love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? Are, are you loyal to him? And that loyalty will be seen. It'll be seen in your attendance at the local church. Now We, we, we mentioned that on Wednesday night. Showing loyalty to the local church. And if you're genuinely saved and love the Lord, you'll want to identify with the local church. You'll not be a lone ranger. But let me just add this. Whenever Peter was writing, 
30 or 40 years had passed from the day of Pentecost. And the church is still in existence. And the church is going on. And the church is living and witnessing to the glory and honor of God. The church is there. The church that had been commenced at one point in history. We we don't know exactly when or by who. It could have been Peter. The church has been established and now been consolidated. And it's all to the glory of God. You see, let let me just say this as we close. Oftentimes we want to blame our environment. This is a hard place. Nothing is going to happen. Or we've been here for so many years and nothing much has happened. Or we've attempted outreach in our community and nothing much has happened. Could I ask this question? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is it not true that the gospel's the power of God unto salvation? Did the Lord Jesus not say all power in heaven and earth I have given unto you? Do we not know the power of the Holy Ghost? You see, so often, and I say this as we finish, and I say this respectfully, so often we leave the Lord out of the picture. Because even if we were right to say, well, this is a hard place, and this is difficult, there's not many people interested in our community and God and the gospel. Loyalism is no time for God or the gospel anymore. Nominal Protestants don't want to know if they profess with their lips that their life shows something different. What can we do in that situation? Well, we can pray. We can go to God and say, Lord, help us. Give us grace and wisdom. We can ask God to give us the power of the Holy Ghost. The Bible tells us, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. No no drunkenness among the people of God. But be filled with the Spirit. We we can be filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. That's something that's missing. Missing in my life. You pray for me that I get the power of the Holy Ghost. And then we need to have passion. We need to have a love for souls. And we need to reach out. We need to realize this church exists because of the grace of God. This church has been established because of the grace of God. And this church can only be consolidated and strengthened by the grace of God. You think of darkest England. Days of Wesley and Whitfield. Men of God who were bitterly imposed as they preached the gospel. Conformists and non-conformists alike opposed them. But what happened as they preached? God swept through England. In the 18th century, there was a great awakening brought about through the preaching of the gospel. And even toughened miners, hardened men, they were gloriously saved. And in fact, the, the, the historians tell us that the, the, the tears ran down their face and all you could see is two trickles down each cheek of men who were weeping their way to come to Christ. You see, that's the power of God. And that's what was at work at Babylon. And notice he says, saluteth you. You see, they they had a love for the saints. 
They had a solidarity with God's people who were going through a hard time. And, 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 and Peter wanted to, to mention that. These people were anxious. Let the believers in Asia Minor know that we're with them. We we're praying for them. We're asking God to help them. We're praying that the power of God will come and strengthen them, even though it's hard for them to be a Christian. Maybe that's the way you feel. It's hard for you to be a Christian. You can go and ask God for help. You can get the power of the Holy Ghost in your life. You can have a, a, a passion, a, a heart that's full of love for the Lord. And then no matter how difficult the day is, no matter how dark things are, no matter how discouraged you are, no matter how full of doubt you are, you can hold on to this truth that the electing purposes of God stands and always guarantees the success of the gospel. Always the God who saves keeps his people may the lord bless these few thoughts to you this morning thank you for listening i appreciate your patience